your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Hello, this is Catherine, your host of the podcast, Your Positive Imprint, the variety show featuring people all over the world whose positive achievements inspire positive thought and action. Exceptional people rise to the challenge. Music by the talented Chris Knoll. Check out his music and learn more about him at chrisnoll.com, C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. Fabulous music and lots of genre, too. And I'm working on featuring him on the show, but I do want to do it in person. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Visit my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, where you can sign up for podcast updates and follow this podcast. Please share your favorite episodes, too, at yourpositiveimprint.com. Listen and follow my show from Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, or of course, listen from your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to hit that subscribe, download, or follow button. And remember, this is a free podcast. Your Positive Imprint. What's your PI? Before I introduce my guest, I would like to provide a quick note. This episode was recorded with NASA's principal investigator, Josh Willis, in August 2019. Climate change is something that is so important to understand. And the climate change oceanographers that I have had on my podcast have provided excellent verbiage in understanding the research and the data. And I think it's important that I continue to bring this information to you so that you hear the information. So today's guest is NASA's Josh Willis, who is the principal investigator for Greenland's OMG's research project. OMG meaning Oceans Melting Greenland. You can learn more about NASA's OMG's research at their website, omg.jpl.nasa.gov, or of course right here on Your Positive Imprint podcast with Josh Willis. Josh continues to do his research over in Greenland, and this episode explains what the research is that he is doing and why NASA is doing this research in Greenland. NASA, oceans melting Greenland, a five-year mission to explore ice melt and warming oceans, to seek out solutions and causes, to boldly go where the water meets the ice. Welcome, Principal Investigator for NASA and the Oceans Melting Greenland, Josh Willis, a.k.a. Climate Elvis. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Wow, thank you for that introduction. That was amazing. I could hear the Star Trek theme in the background. I know. Well, I'm so thrilled to have you, and I'm so excited to talk about your research, but also not just the research, but what you're doing to spread the word. Climate Elvis is pretty awesome. Josh, give us a little bit of background on why you're here in this role as principal investigator. Oh, well, thanks, Catherine, first of all, for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a climate scientist. I started studying really global warming and the oceans as a graduate student a really long time ago now, like 20 (laughs) years ago. (laughs) 
I, I thought I wanted to be a physicist for a while. And then it turned out that my physics professors didn't want me to be a physicist. And after that... Uh, so after why that, didn't I, they want you to be a physicist? I wasn't very good at it. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> well, I actually, I failed out of graduate school in uh, <laughs> physics. That was my first great achievement. But I, I really wanted to be a scientist ever since I was very young. And I just wasn't quite sure what I wanted to study. I found the Scripps Institution of Oceanography right down the hill from where I was studying at UC San Diego. And they took me and I, I started studying the oceans and especially how the oceans help shape our climate. Because to me, climate change was one of the most important and kind of compelling things going on on the planet. And it still is today. Oh, absolutely. So then that kind of set your career. You are with NASA, a program with NASA. What did you do before you landed this amazing principal investigator with NASA? I started working at NASA right after graduate school at the Jet oh, Propulsion Laboratory uh, here in California. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, here in uh, Pasadena, California. I started working there as what's called a postdoc which is sort of like two years of indentured servitude after you get your PhD. After that, they hired me as, uh, as a researcher, and I started working on the satellites that measure sea level rise from space. And now I'm the lead NASA scientist for those. Cool. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's really cool, actually. And, and in a way, it's one of the simplest things we measure from space. So these satellites fly along, and they have a radar, just like just like the cops use to catch you speeding. <laughs> and it bounces a radar wave off the ocean and it comes back up and the satellite measures how long it takes to go down and come back. And that tells it the satellite very accurately how far away the, the seawater is. So then you need one more piece of information. You need to know the location of the satellite. So if you know where the satellite is, how far above the earth it is, uh, and how far it is down to the water, then it tells you sea level, essentially. It measures how tall the oceans are. And these satellites are so accurate that they can measure a change in sea level of about one inch from 800 miles up. Wow. It's wow. Cool. So this data is transmitted back down to Earth, and scientists and engineers process it and, and look at it. And one of the things that we do is, is calculate uh, sea level, not just in each location, but averaged over the whole planet. And when we average over the whole globe, we can see global sea level rise, which is one of the main consequences of human-caused global warming. Okay. With these satellites, is it United States alone, or is it a shared? It's a it's a shared. It's, a, it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, the very first one of these satellites was called Topex Poseidon, and it was launched in 1992. And it was the first time the United States teamed up with the French space agency called CNES, uh, which is a very long French acronym that I will mess up if I try to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but CNES and NASA uh, together launched this satellite. And ever since then, there have been several more. There was Jason 1, Jason 2, now Jason 3. We're working on the next set of Jason missions right now to, to build them and launch them. But each one has continued measuring how sea level has changed. And as the satellites have matured, 
the relationships have matured. And so now it's not just NASA and the French Space Agency, but also NOAA, the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration here in the U.S., a similar agency called UMETSAT, uh, which is uh, the European Meteorological Satellite Agency, and also now ESA, which is the European Space Agency, are all teaming up together to continue building these satellites. So it's a huge international partnership. And in part, that's a reflection of the fact that measuring global sea level rise is such an important thing to do. Absolutely. I interviewed somebody from Woods Hole who yes. works on the instruments. His name was Kurt Poulsen, and I was able to go out there and actually touch these instruments and look at them, and I was amazed at the size of these. Several of them were profilers. And then Helen Phillips from the University of Tasmania, who measures the Antarctic circumpolar current. And she's been doing that for years, and it's, it's all of these scientists worldwide that are bringing information together so that the scientists and policymakers can seek out solutions. I, I think this is absolutely fabulous, especially because it's an international effort. Yeah, I, I, I love it too. In my job as a NASA scientist for these missions, one of the things I have to do is every couple of years, I help plan a, a science meeting for about 200 scientists from all over the world. And we all come together, look at the data from these satellites and try to understand them and try to make sure that the data is as accurate as possible. And uh, it's, it's funny because one of the things that, uh, that we struggle with as scientists is to communicate what we're doing. And, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there, too, especially yes. about climate change, right? I've had folks write me emails or, uh, you know, even in person sometimes say, well, you guys are faking all that sea level data. The oceans aren't really rising. It's hard to deal with that, for one thing. But, uh, you know, there's literally hundreds of people and every day their full-time day job is to make sure this data is accurate and correct. And they've been doing it for 30 years. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yes, there's a quote and I learned it from, and I love this quote. I don't know if it came from you, but it was an IMAX movie. And the, the scientist said, climate change is a science. I mean, that to me, that just sums it up. It's a science. And so I want to get into the science and I want to hear about what it is that you're doing to do these measurements. So in your information, in your data, you're talking about the heat that gets trapped within the oceans and the calving of these glaciers out in Greenland and really worldwide, but Greenland, because that's where you're doing this work, when it heats up, it expands, right. that adds to our rising oceans. Absolutely, absolutely. About one third of modern day sea level rise is caused by this warming and expansion of the oceans. Uh, and in fact, that's what I got my PhD on. Was oh, really? Trying to calculate, yeah, <laughs> how much of it is the warming? Um, because we know the warming's happening. We know seawater expands when it warms. So how much of sea level rise is caused by that? And, and it turns out it's about a third to a half, depending on the time, the period of time you're looking at. But out in the future, the big enchilada is going to be the ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica. 
And understanding how fast those are melting and adding extra water to the ocean, that's the real challenge for figuring out what's going to happen in the next hundred years. And that's how we uh, came to, to do Oceans Melting Greenland. And why is it a five-year mission, the funding, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, so uh, uh, Oceans Melting Greenland, or OMG, as uh, Oh, my as gosh! Like call it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I, I have to confess that I did pick that name in one of my very first ever comedy classes here in California. Oh, that's <laughs> um, funny. <laughs> I, I, I studied improvisational theater at the Second City School here in Hollywood, and, and it's one of the things that I like to do to communicate about this stuff. But OMG really came about because NASA has a program called Earth Ventures, and this is a set of missions that get funded by NASA that are driven by principal investigators like myself. So for a long time, a lot of NASA science happened by NASA or the community saying, hey, we need to measure this. And then NASA says, okay, uh, here's one of our labs that's really good at building that thing. You guys go build it and we'll launch it. And in recent years, especially for Earth science, about 10 or 15 years ago, Earth scientists got together and said, hey, you know, it's great that NASA does all this stuff, but we'd also like to be able to have NASA do smaller missions that are led by individual scientists. And so NASA created this program. And the Earth Ventures program has a few different pieces, but one of them is aircraft missions, so airplane missions. And that's what we proposed with OMG, was essentially to fly around Greenland measure the oceans using these sensors we drop out of a plane. Those and then the also measure yes, right, the little probes, exactly. And and ask how are those two things related? We measure the oceans, we measure the ice, and then watch them change together over time. And because NASA is NASA, we're talking air missions. Why not boats? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I mean, certainly there are other researchers around who use ships to study Greenland. Greenland's a big place. So ships are great for studying sort of uh, a single glacier or a few glaciers that empty into one fjord. But if you want to get the big picture of what's going on all the way around Greenland, then you need to be in the air or even in space. Okay, so let's talk about what you're actually doing over in Greenland. Oh yeah, yeah. We use probes to measure profiles. So we use these instruments to measure not just the temperature and salinity right at the surface of the ocean, but all the way down to the bottom. It's a few hundred meters or sometimes even a thousand meters. So you know, a thousand meters is like 3,000 feet. So it's many thousands of feet uh, the depth of the water around Greenland. Now that's a lot shallower than most places. The, the middle part of the ocean is about 4,000 meters deep over most of the ocean. That's 12,000 feet, so it's really deep. But when you get close to land, of course it gets shallower, but a lot of islands and, and places have what's called a continental shelf, and Greenland does too. It's a place where it gets kind of shallow and you have a, a, a layer of water and then the island kind of comes up out of that layer of water. So this shallow shelf is where a lot of the interesting oceanography is happening, but so far no one's really measured it, not in a very comprehensive way. We don't have any measurements before OMG of what's going on on the shelf around Greenland. 
And why did you choose the, spe- the shelf as opposed to where currants meet or, right. yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. The water around Greenland is very interesting on the shelf. So offshore, the oceanography is pretty well understood. We have other instruments. We have these things called Argo floats that drift around in the open ocean. Uh, you might have seen some at Woods Hole. Yes. <laughs> those, those are cool. It's an amazing uh, system of these floats. But the problem is they go down about 2,000 meters when they dive. And that means they don't really work on the shelves. They don't, we don't really have any on the shelves. So the shelves are kind of the last place where we're not really measuring very much. We don't really know what's going on. And the shelves around Greenland are very interesting because the water there is upside down. That's which, interesting. I'm trying to visualize that. Yeah, right. It's upside <laughs> down. And the reason I say that is because there's a layer of cold water on top and a layer of warm water down below. It's one of the few places in the world that happens because usually warm water, what? It rises because it's lighter. Okay, lighter because the heat. Remember we talked about the thermal expansion, right? So if it's warmer, the same amount of water takes up more space. And so its density is lower. And that means it's usually closer to the surface. So why would that phenomenon be taking place in Greenland and not Antarctica? Well, actually, Antarctica is similar. What's different around Greenland and Antarctica is actually the salinity. The temperature is warm, so that would normally make it light, but the water there is also very salty. So around Greenland, what you have is a layer of warm, salty water from the Atlantic Ocean, which is the saltiest ocean, and then a layer of cold, fresh water from the Arctic Ocean, which is the freshest ocean. And because the water is so fresh, it has so little salt in it, then it's, it rises. Uh, it's exactly, it's lighter and mm-hmm. it sits on top of uh, the okay. warm water from the Atlantic. And that warmer water for the glaciers, that's what's really important because that's what can melt away the ice the quickest. The cold water, you know, I don't know, have you ever made uh, homemade ice cream? I sure have. <laughs> you, know, you know, you put the ice in the little bucket, right? And then what do you do to the ice? You put salt on it. <laughs> I forgot about that step. Yeah. yeah. Nobody makes homemade ice cream anymore. You put salt on the ice. And the reason you do that is because salty water actually has a freezing temperature below zero or below uh, 32. So it's zero degrees Celsius to freeze normal fresh water. But it's actually minus two degrees to freeze salt water. So the ocean water doesn't actually freeze until it gets below minus two Celsius. And a lot of this water from the Arctic actually is colder than freezing. It's below zero. And so it can't melt the glaciers because the glaciers will only melt if the temperature is above zero degrees Celsius. So the Arctic water is kind of protecting the glaciers and the Atlantic water underneath is eating away at them. Oh, because and, the, I'm seeing the picture now because the, uh, of course, the glaciers are deep, deep, deep. We only see a little right. tiny piece of them. That's right. That's right. Exactly. The oh. glaciers in Greenland, the ice in Greenland is so heavy that it's actually pressed the land down. And a lot of these glaciers sit below sea level. 
So they, when they reach the ocean, they're actually sitting in hundreds of meters of water in some cases. They feel the ocean water directly right on the face of the glacier. And that means that if they're shallow and they're sitting in that cold Arctic water, they're fine. Right. But if they're deep and they feel that warm Atlantic water, then they melt away at the bottom. And when they melt away at the bottom, then big chunks break off more quickly. Thank you for that because I... Absolutely. Yeah, that was a great understanding. So you're doing this ice survey up there and you're flying the airplanes and you're dropping these probes. So you're the one that actually chooses the places to drop these probes. Right. Tell us how this happens. Well, yeah. So uh, there's two different surveys. We fly around and measure the ice with a radar. So the plane flies really high and it, it uses a radar and it looks down and it measures how the, the glaciers are either advancing or retreating and getting thicker or thinner. So it's kind of monitoring the health of all the glaciers all the way around Greenland. And then in the summer, we fly around over the oceans and drop these probes. And the probes are kind of neat. They're these gray cylinders. They're about three feet long. And about this big around. So this and big around, they, how? Give me the diameter. So it's about uh, it's about five, four or five inches in diameter. And so like a salad plate. Long. It's like a salad plate, yes, uh, and 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 tall. You know, they're they're three feet and they weigh about fifteen pounds, something like that. And we drop them out of the plane. There's a little tube, and we literally push them out of the bottom of the plane. And when they fall, uh, there's a parachute, so they don't hit too fast. And when they reach the water, they separate into two pieces. And one piece stays at the surface, so it's got a little float. And in that float is an antenna that can radio data back to the airplane in real time. Then the other piece actually drops on a tiny thin wire about the thickness of a human hair. Wow. Uh, or maybe a little thicker. It falls, and as it goes, it measures the temperature and the saltiness. And that data gets radioed back to the plane in real time. Then the probe falls all the way down to the seafloor usually. And so we are able to measure not just the temperature right at the surface, but all the way down into that warm, salty layer as well. And so what's the lifespan of the probe once it hits the water? About 10 minutes. Oh, because of the coldness? (laughs) Well, no, it has, it's really, it's a single use instrument. So we get one profile out of it, and then the floating part actually sinks itself. So in about 15 or 20 minutes, the whole thing winds up on the seafloor where it slowly dissolves uh, and gets covered by sediments. Oh, but wow. but we, only get, we only get one profile out of most of these because they're just designed to measure the one profile. It'd be, it'd be nice if we could get lots and lots of profiles out of them, but, uh, but doing that requires much more expensive equipment. And the thing about OMG is we're trying to see the big picture. So we're really trying to see temperatures all the way around Greenland. And to do that, uh, this sort of single-use instrument is kind of the best, the best tool we have for now. Oh, well, do you use any of Argo around there? There is Argo data close. But it's all off the shelf because the Argo floats sink down too deep. So they go down to 2,000 meters, but the shelf is only uh, 500 meters. Okay. Deep. 
So if they start to get close to the shelf, they start to run into the bottom, uh, and then after a while they die. Argo's great for telling us what's going on offshore, and that Atlantic water that eventually melts the glaciers comes from offshore, and Argo's definitely measuring that. But how it gets up onto the shelf and actually reaches the glaciers, OMG is really the only thing we have for measuring that. You said you have two missions. You have spring. Right. And right. when that's is the next we, one? That's where we measure the ice. And we did that in March. We typically do them in March. There's a chance we might do it again next March. But actually, since we started OMG, a new satellite launched called ISAT. Uh, and ISAT is sort of like, you know, we talked about the Jason missions, which measure the height of the ocean. ISAT does the same thing, but it does it for ice. And it uses a laser to look down uh, from space and see how tall the ice is. So probably we'll be able to use data going forward to see how the glaciers are changing uh, from last year to this year and, and next year. Okay. When did the mission start, your five-year mission? It, we started in really in 2016, we started the regular surveys. We're trying to do five ocean surveys. So this year we'll do our fourth and then next year we'll do one more and then that'll be that'll be it for OMG. Unless you get funding again? <laughs> Unless we get funding or, or, or permission to do another year. The five-year mission was really designed so that we could do this experiment. We could watch, okay, we see the oceans are doing X, Y, Z and the ice is doing one, two, three. And if we understand how those things change together, then going forward in the future, the idea is that we'll be able to watch the oceans from farther offshore and still have a good idea of what's actually reaching the glaciers and how they're gonna respond. That's interesting. And what happens if you continue to see the rising temperatures and the breaking of ice? In fact, this is where you can talk about this wonderful <laughs> website yeah. that you have that has yeah. all of this information and your webmaster, Sean Hardman, is taking your data and he's doing a great job of putting it on a very uh, user-friendly website. Yeah, yeah. All of our data is public as soon as we can make it. As soon as we have processed it and it's usable, then we make it public. And that's an important part of, of NASA missions. And I personally think it's an important part of climate science as well because the Earth is changing and we're, we're all in this together. And so sharing that kind of data, in my opinion, is, is extremely important and something I've always emphasized in, in OMG. But in addition to that, I, I think we also have a responsibility to explain to the public what we're doing because NASA and most science research is paid for with public funding. And we do this research so that people better understand what's happening to the Earth. And so I think it's part of our job, not just to explain the science to each other, but scientists should also be explaining it to the general public. And that will bring me to your climate Elvis in a <laughs> moment, because I want to ask you about the people of Greenland over in Kulasuk. Yes. What, what kinds of conversations do you have with them? Do they know very well about what's happening to their country? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Greenland is, is uh, uh, it, it's a very large country in terms of its area, but it's very small in terms of people. Only about 50 or 55,000 people live wow. in Greenland. That very is tiny. Uh, and most of them are descendants of uh, Inuit, so uh, native people who've lived on Greenland for thousands of years. And 
they've watched Greenland change in the recent past and are very aware that climate change is altering their whole way of life. But of course, by definition, these folks live in a place that's an incredibly challenging climate in the first place. It's incredibly difficult. They use the ice to their advantage in many ways. They live on the ice. They, a lot of them are, are basically subsistence fishermen and hunters. And that by its very nature means that they're very adaptable. They're very much prepared for changes in their environment. So climate change is sort of just one more big thing that they're ready to adapt to. So it's been interesting because I, I think they're aware that the climate is changing, of course, but they're also, I think, confident in their ability to, to adapt to it, which is something that's sort of unique to Greenland, I believe. Interesting, because they've, when you say subsistence living, with the changing of the ice and so on, certainly migration, migra- animal migratory, uh, would be different. A- absolutely. And, you know, they're beginning to already see some effects, I, I think, of climate change and, and how it affects the wild. There is a, a sizable commercial fishing industry there as well that they are working hard to maintain sustainably. But it, it is it is affecting the way of life and, and you know, it's going to continue to do so. But they're they're tough folks. Yeah, I was up <laughs> They'll in... figure it out, I think. I mean, it, that, yeah. which is not to be flippant about the changes. Of course, they're they're big and they're important. And, you know, I think if if you're uh, a subsistence hunter that's known a certain way of life for uh, for generations, then it's going to be quite a big change. But they have a very, I think, lively and, and tough spirit there, which I, I find admirable. <laughs> I agree. I was up in not Greenland, but I was with some other Inuits up in the Arctic, Kaktuvik, which is in Alaska, yeah. way up there. It's the same, and they are subsistence hunters and survivors. But I think for everybody on this planet, climate change is definitely something that some people say, oh, we we will just, you know, make do. It's going to happen. But the way I see it is if we can slow it down, I would like to see that because where I live, we are told that if climate change continues, that we will have certain trees move into our ponderosa pine area and our aspen area, and that's not what I want to say. I want to, I I like the forest the way they are. You know, make, make no climate change is a massive shift of our planet, and our civilization is built on the climate we've had for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So, to shift that climate in such a dramatic way is going to have uh, massive consequences. They're going to be um, huge, difficult to deal with. And you're exactly right. It's a it's a question of how bad do we want to let it get. The the changes are are almost going to have no benefits. There's not going to be much benefit to climate change. Mostly, it will be expensive to deal with in terms of dollars and in terms of lives. So it's it's a real crisis and one that we have to figure out how to address. And the best way to address it is to avoid it. <laughs> I mean, as much as we can. Sure, there's going to be some climate change, but we have to decide how much and 
less is definitely better. Well, your work is so much needed and I wish I could be up there uh, <laughs> taking pictures because I think what you're doing is totally awesome. And I urge my listeners to, and new listeners, to go to your website. If you want to learn more about OMG, you can Google OMG NASA. That's the easiest way to find it. But it's uh, omg.jpl.nasa.gov. That's the main website where we house the data. But there's a, a page that's about OMG that has a, the nice video and, and a really nice explanation of what we're doing. But also, if you want to follow along while we're in Greenland, you can follow along on my Facebook page, which I maintain, which is facebook.com slash climate Elvis. That's me. Just yes, it is. And you <laughs> definitely resemble him with the thank long you, sideburns. Thank you. Thank you very much. There you go. So that is a great opening to Climate Elvis. Oh, that's the climate you got, maybe. You take a bunch of weather and you average it together and you do in the climate rot. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. So Climate Elvis. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's I love my... the name. <laughs> Why Elvis? I'm sure you were going to go into that and I probably jumped the gun there, but no, I'm no, anxious to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's fun for me to do. And Elvis has always been somebody that I've, I've admired and enjoyed. Uh, but a few years back, I, I went to the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., and they had an exhibit on Elvis. And they had this amazing photograph of him from, it was over the shoulder, looking out on him on a stage in front of thousands of people who were going crazy. And he was just kind of standing there with his hip tilted out to the side a little bit, looking cool. <laughs> <laughs> and the title of the photograph was, I believe, 19, which is how old he was when it was taken. And I was blown away. I, I couldn't believe that somebody could have such charisma and really connect to so many people at such a young age. And I thought that's that's really amazing. And 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 he was really a national treasure. And so I I kind of rediscovered Elvis when I got a little bit older. And and uh, he really became somebody that I I admired. And when I started doing climate science, you know, I. I had these little sideburns, which have gotten longer. <laughs> uh, and my hair is kind of tall, and yep. uh, you know, I'm kind of a doughy middle-aged white guy, so it seemed <laughs> it seemed right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh. the Facebook page actually came first. Climate Elvis was something I sort of just dubbed myself. <laughs> By the way, you can follow along uh, in in sort of real time with us uh, on the Facebook page. I post photographs, uh, I post where we are and maps of what we've done so far. So check out Climate Elvis on Facebook. Um, but this contest came up. The, the Elvis video came from a contest before that, which I did not win. But nevertheless, uh, it stimulated me to make this video the climate rock where I play Elvis and I sing an Elvis song that I wrote the lyrics for as uh, sort of a, a tribute to to uh, jailhouse rock. It's called the climate rock. <laughs> and if you Google climate Elvis, then it's the first thing that comes up. The video really uh, was something that I, I had been wanting for a long time to find a way to sort of connect these different worlds that I lived in. Uh, you know, I, I've been a scientist for pretty much 20 years now, 
But I, about seven or eight years ago, I, I kind of rediscovered my love of theater and I started taking improv classes. And I did this because I wanted to be better at communicating about climate change and global warming. And I felt like comedy was for me a natural way to do it. So I started taking classes and, and I, I fell in love with it all over again. And, and so I have this uh, secret, you know, nightlife where I go out and perform <laughs> and, and do all this stuff. And I've been trying to figure out how to kind of bring that together with my with my day job. And so Climate Elvis so far is the best example of that. <laughs> I think it's awesome. And how does NASA feel about that? Uh, they're fine with it. I mean, you know, as long as I'm keep doing my day job. They, they, don't, <laughs> <talk> about <laughs> they don't want to lose their principal investigator in the right. middle of the research. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I haven't, I haven't gotten any record deal offers yet though. So they're safe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I think it's, it's just, it's fun. And like you say, and I really, really love the fact that you said for you, comedy is a natural way to communicate. And you have a billion messages that you need to be communicating to the world. But I, I, I think, I think what you said exactly right. That that for me, comedy is sort of a natural language because I I enjoy laughing. I always have. I enjoy uh, getting other people to laugh. But I I think for such a serious topic like climate change, it helps break the ice so to speak yeah <laughs> no pun intended on land right <laughs> but i feel like if it's if we can laugh about it a little bit then it makes it easier to talk about it and i hope makes it easier to accept it because accepting that it's happening is really the first step of figuring out what to do about it and that's something we desperately need to do so part of the reason i approach it that way is in the hopes that i'll be able to help people who don't believe that climate change is happening, begin to at least have a conversation about it, to, to talk about what we can do about it, to begin to accept that it's really happening. And, you know, I, I feel like a, a good laugh and an old Elvis song is the way to go. I think it's wonderful. And it does open up for communication, for dialogue. And when you look at our past scientists whom have had and a charismatic personality, Bill Nye, help me out here. Who Neil are some? Tyson, yes, always. yes. <laughs> yeah. So some of some of those folks who have who have used comedy have really communicated messages. Because what happens when you love a line in a song? You repeat it over and over. It's it's like watching a commercial jingle, and you constantly are singing that in your head because it it resonated with you in some way. And then the more you say it, or the more you see it, the more you understand it and you think about it. And so I think that Climate Elvis is fabulous. And I loved the part with you on the street in the Elvis <laughs> outfit. Well, thank you for that. It, it was it, it was a lot of fun to do. The, the young woman who was in the video is someone I've known because I we've also done a few other just comedy videos with a, a good friend of mine who is a, a budding filmmaker. Her name is Lizzie Gordon. She directed that Climate Elvis video. But uh, uh, she really helped inspire me to um, uh, to get out and do it. And the young woman was someone that we had worked as a, a young actress that we'd worked with uh, on a previous short. 
And she was fascinated by global warming and uh, talked to me uh, when she found out I was a scientist, talked to me about it for a while. And so uh, I thought, oh, she'd be perfect for this video. <laughs> and she's, uh, you know, clearly the better actress and performer. <laughs> Are you talking about the, 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 the young girl, the girl, uh, the young okay. girl who asked me on the street, uh, what's climate? <laughs> and she was amazing. Right. A young budding actress, Tessa Espinola is her name. She's also fantastic. That's one of the fun things about living in LA is there's so many uh, amazing people that are willing to work with you. <laughs> and who's the band? Oh, the band was a couple of friends. The two girls in the band were uh, friends of ours, and they have an actual band called Lion's Mouth, which is excellent. And then the keyboardist was another friend from my improv days. <laughs> oh my goodness. We had a track, yes. I had a I had another friend also from my improv days who uh, performed the the music for the song and and then had it mixed and and produced so that it sounded sounded pretty good. It <laughs> and did. He, re he recorded me singing too and then mixed it all in the track together like a like a wizard so that I sounded good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it was wonderful and and I urge you listeners to go on and and Google Climate Elvis and. Check him out. He's on YouTube. Is there anything else about Climate Elvis that I forgot to ask you? <laughs> oh, oh, I think that's it. I'll, I'll, I'll still continue to be doing this character for a while. A few folks have, have asked me to perform it live. So I've had to learn to play the guitar, <laughs> which was a huge challenge. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> but it's, it's something I'm kind of working on turning into something I can do live on stage. Well, what's truly awesome about this is not just because it's you and you are just an amazing you, but because you are a scientist, you are a principal engineer for Oceans Melting Greenland, and the knowledge that you have is sincere and it is true. So the message you're bringing is not just somebody paid to go out and spread a message. You are doing this because you are trying to get that message out in two different ways. So you're twofold. You have your scientist papers and all the data, and then you have your climate Elvis in trying to reach the public in two different ways. You are very talented. And oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, your positive imprints are much appreciated. And I'm so glad that you're sharing those here on my podcast, Your Positive Imprint. Thank you so much, Catherine. Great to talk to you. Oh, it's great to talk to you. So. Your five-year mission is going to be ending soon, but your exploration of the ice melting and the warming oceans and seeking out those solutions and causes will continue. You have a legacy. <laughs> I'm excited about that. Thank you. <laughs> your positive imprint. What's your PI? Oh, that's the climate you got, baby. You take a bunch of weather and you average it together and you do when the climate rot. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much.